The EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Theology of the Body with your hosts, Father Richard Hogan and Katrina Zeno. Welcome back to this exciting discussion of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. I'm Father Richard Hogan, a priest of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis in Minnesota. And with the permission of my Archbishop, I work full-time with a national apostle called Natural Family Planning Outreach. That is an organization which works out of the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City. And with me is... I'm Katrina Zeno, co-foundress of Women of the Third Millennium. And we're standing here by Mary for the beginning of this show because we ended the last show speaking about glorified humanity. And Mary is a beautiful example of a human person in heaven who's received her glorified body, the hope that we all have. Right. She's the only human person who has a glorified body at the moment. Christ does, of course, and he's the firstborn of the dead, but he's a divine person. So the Blessed Mother is the perfect example of what we all will be, God willing, when we come to the glory of heaven after the resurrection on the last day. And she's such an inspiring example for me because... In her, we see the nuptial meaning of the body. Now, we fulfilled. probably should tell people what the nuptial meaning of that's the body right, is again. That's right. Well, let me see if I have my bow in here. Oh, I still do. <laughs> but the nuptial meaning of the body is the fact that my body is created as a human person, as a gift. Oops. And the fact that you know this through your own experiences of your own body. That Adam and Eve came to know this by watching themselves through their self-awareness, their consciousness, watching themselves give themselves to each other in the first marriage in the Garden of Eden. So it's this self-knowledge that is gleaned from our own experience of ourselves. And Mary in heaven, because she's glorified and she has a glorified humanity, she's able to perfectly make this gift of self. So the nuptial meaning of her body is perfected in heaven. Totally fulfilled in heaven. The nuptial meaning of the body is totally fulfilled there because the body is involved, since it's glorified, in this incredible gift of herself and all of us when we come there to God in this relationship of love. You know, that's really made a difference in my relationship with Mary. The fact that I can ask her to help me even now, you know, live out the nuptial meaning of my body, be able to make this gift of self to others because I know that's what she's doing for all eternity. Mm. It's not as if we get to heaven and we rest on our laurels, you know, la-di-da, having a tea party. No, we actually continue. Remember we saw last show with the leaf in the pitcher of water that our personhood stands out to an incomparably greater extent. We continue to make this gift of self in heaven. And so Mary continues to make that gift to me. Even though we're not married in heaven, that's as the right. Lord said. That's again why Mary is such a perfect example of this, because while she was married, she was also a virgin. And she lived out both sides, if you will, of the nuptial meaning of the body, certainly as a wife and a mother, without ever having the usual relationship with mm -hmm. Joseph that a married woman would have. And in that virginal state, she lived out the nuptial meaning of the body because she gave herself not only to her family, but also to God. In, in a kind of a single state sort of way. So she was the, um, if you will, a sign of what was coming in the glorification of her body in heaven. And you know what that means? That means another, another, you're orange again. <laughs> Someone's going to have to eat that pretty quick. It's time quick. for a new yeah. cycle. That's yeah. what it means. Because that leads us exactly to cycle number four, um, or segment number four, which is about virginity or celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. We should probably tell people what number we're on. Oh, yeah. This yes. is number 73. 73 to uh, 86, it's the fourth cycle. And remember, this is a big transition. The first three, 
cycles, 1 to 23, 24 to 63, and then the third cycle, 64 to 72, those three talked about the way the human body is the expression of the person in the three stages or states of humanity, in the Garden of Eden before sin, first cycle, in uh, the case now with historical man, second cycle, and then the one we just finished last time, in heaven at the resurrection of the body at the last day. Which is our glorified humanity. Glorified humanity. Now, the, the, the next three cycles, number four, number five, number six, number four being again 73 to 86, that talks about celibacy and virginity here on earth in light of the conclusions from the first three cycles. And then we go on to marriage in the fifth cycle, 87 to 113. And finally, the whole question of planning a family which is the sixth cycle, 114 to 129. You do remember, I think, all of there out in TV land that these were 129 separate individual addresses John Paul II gave from September 5th, 1979 through November 1984 at the Wednesday audiences. And once again, this cycle is going to start with the words of yeah. Jesus, isn't it? This one does, yes. And in fact, this particular word of Jesus comes right after, very close to, the words of the first cycle. The the words about virginity and celibacy come right after this question that the Pharisees came up to Christ and asked about divorce. Right, because um, Jesus, the, the disciples hear Jesus say about it was for your hardness of hearts that Moses gave a writ of divorce, but in the beginning it was not so. And they're shocked by this and they say, well, if that's the case, then it's better not to marry. Right. They say, well, <laughs> if we can't divorce our wives, we better not marry to begin with because it's too hard. But there's no out. <laughs> Which shows, you know, the whole Old Testament idea that um, women were, were not quite equal mm -hmm. in the Old Testament and Jewish culture. And this is one of the ways. The, a woman could not divorce her husband, but a husband could divorce his wife. And the apostles were shocked at this. They were just really so shocked that Christ would even suggest that divorce was uh, not permitted. And then, of course, the next line yes, about virginity and celibacy, he says that it, um, to those whom, to whom it is given for the sake of the kingdom, they can remain unmarried. But it's interesting, he talks about to those whom it is given, given from above. He does say that there are three kinds of classes of people who are uh, unmarried in the world. Some were born so, some because they were made so by others, and some because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So it's a gift from above, and he adds at the very end of this quotation that whoever can accept this ought to accept it. So it's a gift but it has to be accepted. Accepted. John Paul II, I think, has a very amusing way. He does something unusual uh, in this cycle. He paraphrases Jesus. Right. Yeah. And it's almost, there's a touch of humor to it. This is what John Paul II says, as if Jesus, he says, um, as if Jesus wished to say, I know that what I'm going to say to you now will cause great difficulty in your conscience in your way of understanding the significance of the body. Remember, significance also means meaning of the body. In fact, I shall speak to you of continency, and that's another word for celibacy or virginity. Undoubtedly, you will associate this with the state of physical deficiency, whether congenital, meaning by birth, or brought about by human cause. But I wish to tell you that continence can also be voluntary and chosen by man for the kingdom of God. I love the way the Pope kind of paraphrases Jesus. This is what he 
is really trying to say because it's such a shock it's, to his disciples. It's a tremendous shock. Not only is the is the is the prohibition of divorce a shock, but this idea that celibacy and virginity for the sake of the kingdom could be a good thing just incredibly through the apostles for a loop because it was almost unheard of wasn't it, was, it for well, a jewish person for a woman not to be married was a almost a curse in yes. the old testament for a married woman not to have children was uh, almost again a a insult that you mm -hmm. throw at her you're barren meaning you don't have any children so marriage and procreation was considered an incredibly privileged and blessed state partly because it populated the Jewish kingdom and the Jewish kingdom was considered to be the kingdom of God now we throw that term around a lot when we talk about the Old Testament but we don't always appreciate what that meant to the Jewish people of the mm -hmm. time they actually believed God was their ruler mm -hmm. that they were a chosen people set apart that they were the only ones coming to heaven and to populate that kingdom was an incredible blessing and not to be able to do that was a curse. So marriage and procreation become something to be desired and wanted and is a blessed and holy state. And also it was a participation because God said to Abraham, be fruitful and multiply. Right. So it was the way they actually participated in the covenant that God made to Abraham. And in addition, not only that, that they longed, every Jewish woman longed to be the mother of the Messiah. Right. And so exactly. how did you possibly become the mother of the Messiah, well, by being able to be married and bear children, then it was your hope that maybe, maybe it might be you. So to choose virginity, to choose not to be married, was really unheard of. It's for them. absolutely unheard of. Nobody would choose it. Sometimes they were made that way by birth and sometimes by human cause, but this, these were either looked upon as uh, somehow displeasing to God, that's why you were born that way, or you were you were attacked by someone mm -hmm. or by the civil authorities for some crime or something and therefore were unable to participate in this wonderful yes. blessing of family life and so these these were terrible curses and so when jesus says well you know this can be done for the kingdom of god the apostles are looking at one another stunned i mean this was an example of their actually believing something that for them was kind of from Mars, from, from another planet, from somewhere outside the galaxy. The example I like to give, it would be as if um, I said to everyone out there, you'll never go to the bathroom again for the rest of your life. Something like right? that, you, yeah, You right. think I was crazy, yeah, huh? Yeah. I'm telling you, you'll never go to the bathroom again. Yeah, well, yeah. that's impossible. And I think that may have been kind that of pretty the much reaction was, was the way <laughs> that, they had. that, that um, the apostles uh, probably thought about this. So Jesus is was really pretty stunning. breaking with tradition here, isn't he? Well, yes, breaking with the Jewish tradition, although he's building on it. Exactly. Because he says, uh, or I should say the Holy Father interpreting the Lord, mm -hmm. says that celibacy and virginity clearly fulfill the nuptial meaning of the body. Now, if you just take those words, nuptial and meaning and body, and you put them all together, most people would think marriage, because nuptial is marriage, meaning is the significance of marriage, and marriage is expressed, obviously, in the marital embrace in and through the body. And so it looks like he's talking about marriage. So how can the nuptial meaning of the body be fulfilled by nuns here at EWTN, or brothers or priests here at EWTN, or by, by any priest? A single person, a widow, a widow as you mentioned right, before. Exactly. Yes. And the fact is that if you understand what the nuptial meaning of the body is, which is, of course, what we began the program um, by defining again, the nuptial meaning is this concept that we have 
of our own experience of ourselves, of our own bodies, that we are made, created, if you will, to be a gift. And that gift is expressed in and through the body. And clearly, if you're giving yourself in the celibate or virginal state for the kingdom of God, you are giving yourself to God. Mm. So it's not so much a marriage in the sense of the uh, spousal marriage, in the sense of husband and wife, but it's a, it's a commitment uh, and a self-gift for the sake of the kingdom of, God, of heaven, in other words, to God or the church. Mm. Well, we'll talk more about this interesting problem of virginity and celibacy after the break. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior because he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaid. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done great things to me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is from generation unto generations to them that fear him. He hath shown might with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the conceit of their heart. He hath put down the mighty from their seat, and hath exalted the lowly. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away empty. He hath received Israel his servant, being mindful of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Amen. Join us for the Daily Mass, celebrated each day here on EWTN. We now return to Theology of the Body on EWTN Radio. Welcome back to our discussion of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. We're talking about the fourth cycle. The fourth cycle begins the application of the principles gleaned from the first three studies of the way the body expresses the person in paradise, the way the body expresses the person now after sin, and the way the body would express the person in the resurrection on the last day. And then the Holy Father applies it to celibacy and virginity in the fourth cycle, marriage in the fifth, and the whole question of responsible parenthood in the sixth cycle. And we were saying before the break that the uh, celibate or virgin still fulfills the nuptial meaning of the body because he or she gives himself in a self-donation in and through the body uh, to the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, to the church, and to God. To Christ, right. And clearly the whole sense of virginity and celibacy points to the resurrection of the body because in the resurrection on the last day when we're all in heaven with our bodies we are not given or taken in marriage. Right, well you know I have my little yellow bag here but this next visual aid wouldn't quite fit into it. No, I guess not. <laughs> so if we think of celibacy virginity for the sake of the kingdom it's like a sign so if I'm driving to Birmingham, I need a sign to tell me, you know, this way to Birmingham. If I don't have it, actually it was in Ireland one summer driving with a friend. Thank goodness she was driving because there were very few street signs and it was very hard at times to find our way. But here, you know, we've got a few more. So I see that sign, oh, okay, Birmingham, 52 miles. Well, then when I get to Birmingham, I don't need the sign anymore because I'm there. Well, I think virginity is very similar to that in the sense of when you meet someone who's living a celibate or a virginal life, it makes you stop and ask yourself, hmm, you know, why are they doing this? Because it's not the norm. 
It's an exception to the Virginia, Virginity or celibacy is an exception. Right. Clearly, even though Christ said that uh, this was for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, he also made it quite clear that only those to whom this is given have the opportunity to accept it. Right. So the norm is still marriage for most people, although the single life uh, outside of a dedicated virgin or committed celibate, in other words, a single life in the world, is also a possibility. It is a possibility, and even a person living a single life in the world is also a sign also of heaven, because they're living, in a way, a celibate and a virginal life, and, that, and if they're living that joyfully and in a fulfilled way, it makes people stop and think. Right. And so the fact that the body isn't living in marital union, nuptial union with another person, instead it's totally available for union with God, then that points to our ultimate vocation, which is our glorified humanity. That, once again, this idea that the body isn't just destined for the grave. Right. You know, it's right. so important, this idea mm -hmm. that the body doesn't just disintegrate and that's the end, but that it is really glorified and raised, and the virginal vocation points to that, that this is the meaning of my body for all eternity. Right, exactly. There's a self-donation to God and through God to everyone else. It's not simply to God in the sense that it's just God and me, even in heaven. It's, it's God and me and then through God, everyone else. I love that idea because that's the communion of saints. That's the communion of saints, exactly. That, right. Yes, it's still in heaven. It's not just a me and God relationship. No. But it's me united with God and everyone mm. else and this union and communion, back to mm. the Trinitarian union and communion. Yes, and John Paul II, as you know, Katrina, is at pains, even in this section, when he's talking more about virginity and celibacy than about marriage, he's at pains to say that the marital union also points to heaven, that this is not exclusive to priests and nuns or to single people in the world, but that married people also point to heaven, but in a different way. The two vocations are complementary. They are not uh, opposed to one another. And it's not as though one is, in an absolute sense, quote, better. Uh, it is rather that those to whom this is given, mm -hmm. those to whom are, are God is asking for this commitment, it's obviously better for that person to do that because that would be the call that he or she is receiving. Mm -hmm. And whatever call you have from God is what is the best for you. Yeah. But that does not necessarily mean that in an absolute sense it's better or lesser or whatever so than really any matter, other location. Sorry, it's a matter of fulfilling my calling. Right. If I'm called to celibacy, well, then that's how I will fulfill myself in the nuptial me of my body and the gift of self. And if I'm called to marriage, then likewise that's how I will fulfill right. myself. Um, I just happened to have marked here what you said about the Pope saying that these are not opposed. He said, marriage and continence are neither opposed to each other, nor do they divide the human and Christian community into two camps. I right, love that. Because exactly. sometimes we tend to do that as per people, don't we? Um, he says, but as it is often said, these two basic situations, these two states, in a certain sense, explain and complete each other. And that's so important that marriage also points to this nuptial union because we see it incarnated in a husband and wife. In their bodies. In their bodies. In a loving self-gift yes. that you can usually see. Yes. You can see them show affection to one another in appropriate ways, even in public. Right. And this testifies that the body will always participate in the self-gift of love, which is, of course, a testimony to heaven. Yes. 
and the celibate or virgin gives himself or herself also in a bodily way, in totally different than marriage, and that points to, if you will, the single life, as opposed to not married in the, in the, in the usual sense of here on earth, in heaven, that we will all, we will not be given or taken in marriage in heaven. So the, the, the married spouses testify to the gift of the body, and the single people committed to the kingdom of heaven and God testify to the fact that marriage is not the only way to give yourself in and through the body, and that's a testimony to heaven as well. Right. And you need both signs. Right, because ultimately that is how we will all live, out the nuptial meeting in the body, as Mary showed us, as in, you mentioned. In heaven, exactly. In heaven. Right. Now, I know some of the other misimpressions is the fact that people choose to be celibate for the sake of the kingdom because they don't have any other options. But the well, Pope's very clear that's not that's what he's saying. Right, that's not what... You know, it's not because you can't find a wife that you should join the monastery and become a priest. In fact, usually people who try to do that uh, don't come to the uh, final profession in a, in a um, religious order or to ordination in the priesthood because it isn't what they're called to. And therefore, it is not something that that is really appropriate for them. It doesn't work, in other words. And those who are in the position to judge vocations see that pretty clearly mm -hmm. and pretty early, mm -hmm. actually, in the formation. And you have a wonderful way of describing how both virginity for the sake of the kingdom and marriage are really acts of love, choices of love. Well, they're both, they're both lifelong commitments. If they're not, they're not love. Love has certain characteristics which we know from the passion death of Christ. It was a union of wills, obviously, because he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. It was based on the fact of our dignity and value, which demanded, in the sense of demanding, because God decided to create us a certain way, our dignity and value demands heaven. We weren't going to get there because of original sin. So he, he loved us because of our dignity and value. So the motive for the will act was our dignity. It was a self-gift. What more could he have given? Mm -hmm. It was permanent and life-giving. If it isn't permanent, it's not love because it turns out to be use. Mm -hmm. What do you do with a toaster that's broken? Yeah, get rid, you of, get it. rid of it. You know, do you do that with a husband who stops working? I sure I hope, hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so a permanent and life-giving will act uh, based on the recognition of the dignity and value of the person and a self-gift. Those are the requirements of love. And whether you're celibate or a virgin or whether you're married, this is the only way to love. And so the married people love in this union of wills through the vows. They do it because they see each other's incredible value and dignity. They give themselves to each other. It's permanent until death. It can't be beyond death because it's a bodily reality. And once the body is in the grave, then that can't go on. So it's until death. And it's life-giving, obviously, with the possibility of the procreation of children. And a celibate or virgin also makes a will act. I mean, all you have to do is go to a profession mm. or go, go to an ordination. You make a very specific will act that's very clear to everybody in the church, especially to you when you do it. It's a, it's a choice. It's based on the recognition of your own dignity and the dignity of all the people in the church, and most especially the incredible value and dignity of God himself, of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Father. It's a self-gift, clearly. It's permanent. We're priests or nuns or brothers or sisters until the end of our lives. 
and it's life-giving in the sense that as, uh, with the priesthood you're, you give the life of grace through the sacraments and it's life-giving in terms of the convent or the uh, friary or the monastery because you pray and you through your prayers and your generous charitable acts bring sometimes physical life delivering necessities of life but more often it's a sp the spiritual goods of the community of saints in the church you know i'd really like to underscore what you've said that this idea that virginity for the sake of the kingdom really is an act of love you know it's, it's faithfulness to one spouse meaning christ and that it's lifelong and it's permanent and it's fruitful. You know, that is something that has transformed my life, this idea that I can be a spiritual mother, because I think many women out there think that, well, you know, I don't have biological children, therefore I can't be a mother, or, you know, I'm past the age of bearing children. And instead, what the Pope is putting before us is this idea of spiritual fruitfulness, the fact that I can give life. I can give spiritual life. I can give emotional life. I can give cultural life. And there are just so many different ways that we can do this as men and women. Right. The Pope's theology is an incredible compilation of an enormous number of ideas. There is a phrase used for Stephen Hawking's work, the great physicist from England. They say that he writes uh, physics for poets. Well, John Paul II's Theology of the Body, and more generally, all of his theological works, is theology for poets. And we're going to talk more about this wonderful poetry of theology of John Paul II in the next program. You've been listening to Theology of the Body with Father Richard Hogan and Katrina Zeno on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen.